G'day everyone, Matty Michael here and welcome to Life of Mine's follow-up property investment episode. Today I'm very honoured to introduce to you Ben Kingsley from Empower Wealth in Melbourne. Now Ben has a resume longer than the Great Wall of China. This this bloke is an absolute machine and he's been kind enough to come on to Life of Mine to share his wisdom of the property market. So if you're going to listen to anyone about property investment, this is the guy you want to listen to. He, uh, he has over 20 years experience in property investing, finance and, and wealth creation and you may have already seen Ben on the Today Show and Sky News Business if you, if you watch those and he provides property and money advice on those shows and he's going to give that to us personally today. And he is also the co-host of The Property Couch, which is Australia's number one rated business podcast. Uh, life of mine comes in at a close second, I'm pretty sure. So take notes, sit back and enjoy our property investment episode with Ben Kingsley. Too easy. We're on. Righto. Ben Kingsley, welcome to Life of Mine, mate. How are you? Good, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Oh, mate. It's an honour, mate. You're the, you are the first uh, TV celebrity of some sort that I've, I've got on here so far. And that's a, that's well, a, please don't call me out. I don't think I'm much of a TV celebrity, but no. I, I, know, I know a little bit about property. Yeah, no, nah, fantastic. Uh, how's, how's things over in uh, sunny Victoria, mate? Cold um, and wet is probably how I best describe Melbourne on on this uh, on this day. But look, you know, ultimately Victoria's doing well, Melbourne's doing well. The east coast of Australia is relatively stable. I mean, we've got some um, some clarity around who's leading the country and what our position looks like, and I think we'll get a bit of an economic bounce because of that. So, um, so that's always helpful, you know, for people who are trying to self fund their retirement. Um, having that consistency and knowing what's going on is, is always important. Yeah, very right. And you were obviously yourself and Bryce were big uh, big campaigners for the, the negative gearing policy. I'm sure it was a bit of a weight off your shoulders when uh, ScoMo come through with the goods pretty much on the Saturday itself. Yeah, look, I mean, ultimately, you know, that we thought it was just a poor policy. Um, that's not to say that um, all tax policy around property is perfect. It's definitely not. But uh, that particular way in which the you know the Labor Party had constructed that policy was um, was really ill-conceived, and it was going to be disastrous for the property market for for both owners and investors and even tenants. Like there was just no winners in that, other than what they thought they were going to get in terms of you know a lot of tax receipts. But even they wouldn't have materialised because um, investors would have you know shifted their mindset into other investments where. The risk wasn't as great and the returns weren't as compromised under that policy so we'll, we'll do the same if the liberals are, are you know putting together some poor policy we'll call it out if we think it's ordinary and you know we're not a big fan of their depreciation policies they're um you know there's they're, they're a bit too aggressive we think properties that do have usable life um elements should should still be able to claim those i mean at the end of the day things do wear and tear and and, and our property investor not being able to claim those the other one we're not a big fan of is um, you know not being able to travel and, and go and inspect your you know your assets, which could be in the millions of dollars, right? So, you know, just because it's residential, you shouldn't be penalised 
basically going and inspecting those. And we know that there were people who might have been taking advantage of it. But, uh, you know, our view is if you um, if you put a cap on it, say $500 a year to travel in the state to inspect a property, um, $250 if you're travelling intrastate, I think that's fair and reasonable. I think a blanket ban um, in that respect and, and also what they did for the depreciation isn't good policy either. So I'm going after the Liberals on that stuff as well. No, good stuff. And as you said, like it's the, it's the select few that are sort of, I guess we could say, take the piss of the of the benefits and it's the, I guess, your retail investors like my, myself and the, the little guys that get penalised. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll go into, oh, I can't steer away from putting my, uh, putting my right wing hat on in every podcast. I usually get a, get into politics in some way. <laughs> yeah. Well, everyone thinks I'm a liberal man, but the, the reality is no, I've voted Labor more than I've voted Liberal in my life. So, I just, you know, I'm probably now centre politics. So I think we definitely need to do as much as we can to um, to keep sustainable economy working and uh, getting that that blend right uh, in terms of sustainable living, sustainable economy, and those people that want to have a go uh, to self fund their retirement should shouldn't be penalised for doing that because I don't believe that uh, Australians should have the mindset that uh, that their retirements the the, um, the obligation of the government, um, it shouldn't be. It should always be the obligation of the individual. You know? So I take that mandate of if it is to be, it's up to me really seriously. And that's why we do the work we do. Yeah, fantastic, and it's good. Good the good that we're good that we've got a voice out there. It's uh, it's great. So look, the reason for the interview today. Ben is a, obviously I've uh, released a, a property episode prior to this based on the very limited knowledge that I have uh, on personal experiences and, and we thought we'd get a, an expert in such as yourself to sort of elaborate on that and more focus on the, the benefits that property investment can give to people within the mining industry that are earning the, the six-figure wages and and looking to you know, give themselves a better life in the future, but might might not be uh, fully certain on how to get into it. So, look, and there's been a lot in the lot in the media of late uh, about the property property cycle. Uh, but and as you know, it's sometimes skewed towards the results in New South Wales and Victoria, whereas and Perth is obviously seen going down. Do you want to do you want to give us a bit of an overview, just a just a quick one? You're you're on the ground floor yourself with it all. What's the what's each state doing in the property cycle at the moment? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's the big message here, isn't it, in the sense that, you know, there are always property markets inside property markets and and that's a good lesson for anyone who's starting out in the property space. Yeah, so I think that's the message. If we, if we go, you know, we do the fly around the country, there's no doubt that, um, you know, that we are very much East Coast centric um, and we've definitely seen, you know, Sydney come off its peaks uh, which was sort of the end of 2017. They, they peaked around July. They're off around 14.9% from the peaks. Um, and in the last 12 months, May to May, um, that figure is is 10.7%. So, you know, that's that sort of shows you. Now, that was after a, a, an incredible run um, that they got uh, on the back of a, a very strong economy and also, you know, historically low interest rates and then FOMO kicks in this fear of missing out. Um, which drove that and, and and Sydney up until that time, I mean, really from 2007 till 2011 didn't do much, um, but then, um, you know, certainly uh, became the premier uh, property market sort of over that last five year period. So they've, they've clawed back a little bit from the, the sort of 70% range of growth that they had. 
uh, Melbourne, um, you know, again, probably benefiting from a really strong economy and, and strong population growth we're seeing um, in terms of some of the numbers we've got. It's, it was 9.9% um, lower than this time last year, May to May. Um, and overall, since their peak in November of 2017, the market here in Melbourne um, is off around 11.1%. Um, you know, that's after, again, sort of 58, 60% gains um, during the last upward cycle. Uh, Brisbane, um, sort of been really a sluggish market. That's on the back of a pretty pretty average economy uh, in Brisbane, certainly suffered from the, uh, the mining correction that we had in the sort of early 2010, 11, 12 periods there. And, and you know, the abandonment of administrative work services out of the Brisbane offices and so forth meant that, um, you know, the jobs opportunities in that market uh, started to dry up and, and that's reflected in, in terms of the confidence around property. So we, we say May to May um, down 2.3% year on year. Um, the overall fall uh, for that market, which did peak in April of 2018, so we've just got to be mindful that um, it's come off um, a growing market when Melbourne and Sydney were still correcting, is, is only been 2.4. So we suspect Brisbane's probably going to bounce back a little bit um, quicker, um, as is Melbourne and, and, um, and sort of Sydney post the election, um, and obviously lower interest rates and, and APRA uh, making some changes around the lending. Um, Adelaide, um, again, sort of, that's been growing steadily. It's the perennial performer, Adelaide. Um, you know, they peaked in December of 2018 and, and since that time have only fallen by 0.5 of 1%. So, you know, the reality there for, for Adelaide is we think, think that one's got more in the tank. So we don't suspect that that's going to be a big correction um, at all. And then obviously Perth market, that's been the biggest challenge um, around Perth. So um, off its peaks, um, from June 2014. So it's been a long hiatus. Um, just obviously goes to show you that you really are the mining state. Um, that was down um, in the last quarter by 1.8% overall for the year on year, down 8.8% and then 19.2% since that peak. So, um, you know, but we'll talk more about Perth in a minute. But in reality, um, you know, that's been a tough market. Um, but there is signs that um that we're getting out the other side of it but still not enough confidence there to be saying um i'd be opening the wallet in perth at this point um hobart's been the star performer in the last uh, couple of years uh, off a really low base and really affordable um challenges there i mean it's just so cheap down there so you got a lot of investors going there chasing the yield um, that pushed the values up uh, quite strongly not as big as their spectacular 2003 run where property prices grew by 50% in a year, um, but still, you know, pretty strong. You sort of saw uh, the peak around 17, 80% growth. Um, you know, they, they've, they peaked in March of this year and they're down 1.3% on that. Um, and they had a, you know, in the last quarter, a, a fall or a decline of 0.7. But again, I think, you know, uh, I'm not a, you know, these are all macro numbers, right? So it's not, it's not a biggie for me in terms of when I look at that. I mean, we talked it earlier about it, Matt, in the sense that, we're, you know, we're buying one property in a big marketplace um, in any city that we buy in. So, you know, these are the global numbers and it's measured by mediums, which are, you know, the only, you know, sort of measurement we've got at that global level. So I don't, I don't you know, nothing of my decision-making rests on these broader numbers, but it's just good to know where they are. Darwin, you know, that's come off uh, significant, off 29.5% from its historical peaks 
Um, you know, so that's that's a, you know a huge decline from where they were. But if you looked at Darwin between two thousand and five and two thousand and ten, it was one of the best performing markets in Australia. So hence you can have these boom times and bust times in these smaller cities. And I think people lose sight of the fact that Darwin, um, in terms of top twenty cities. Uh, doesn't even make the top 15 cities in terms of population size in Australia, even though it's a, it's one of our capitals. And rounding it out with Canberra, um, when we're looking at Canberra, we're looking at um, a 0.2 decline. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, increase. My bad. It's, uh, it's actually had a little bit of growth uh, in dwelling prices. Um, it's up 2.4 overall in the past year. Um, so this is a market that is growing, um, but the unit values. Um, are a little bit softer down around 1.1% in that particular market. So <clears throat> overall, um, it just goes to highlight that there, you know, you've got different markets around the country doing different things. And, and you know, this, these reports are coming out from pretty much data that's collected over the sort of May, June, July, uh, sorry, over the um, March, April, May period of settlements and data starts to flow through. Um, so, you, you know, you'll see these numbers tweak a little bit, but that's that's a fairly good overview in terms of what's happening more broadly. Yeah, no, that's great, Ben. Thanks very much for that. And there's, I guess there's two things I want to focus on there <clears throat> is that, and it, and it rolls into the services you provided in Power Wealth. And as you said, they're, they're macro numbers. And those, for instance, those numbers that is, I think you said, 9.9% in Sydney, they're, they're obviously very skewed by those areas that have gone down by 20 and there's actually there's actually parts of sydney that i assume have remained stable and that's and and i guess for listeners that will get into what empower wealth are all about but when you utilize the services of people like ben that you you're able to target those areas and find those areas for investors to say yep this this area isn't part of this sort of macro decline. You'll actually, there's, as you said, there's little pockets of investment areas where you can can make money in a declining market, and and I guess and people obviously also fall into the trap where just because you you're living in Brisbane doesn't mean you have to buy an investment property in Brisbane. Yeah, that, that's a good story. I mean, look for any miner out there that you know you, you your challenge is that when you know your own backyard and you're time poor and you know, you, you, you've got that value set of, um, you know, you want to maximise your time with your family when you're back. Um, the biggest mistake that people could make is is in terms of the research that they do or the lack thereof. Um, and often, um, you know, they'll come across marketing companies or, or property investment companies that have got products to sell. Um, and that's where, you know, you can have that real challenge around, um, you know, they're the biggest mistakes I see people making. You know, they're rushing in, uh, they take bad advice. Um, the advice is not tailored to them. Um, it's a cookie cutter solution. They're offering house and land packages or off the plan apartments, really trying to focus in on the tax outcomes, um, which look, in reality, uh, you can still get some, some healthy tax outcomes through buying existing property. But uh, you don't want to run a business or an investment at a loss, right? And that's what happens with negative gearing. So ultimately, negative gearing is just a moment in time whereby, you you know, the, the income's not covering the cost of holding the property. But over time, you absolutely want it to not only cover the costs, but also spit out some passive income for you because that's going to supplement you um, as you aspire to, uh, to retire self-funded. 
um, and replace your income because the moment you're able to do that, the choice of whether you want to work is yours and yours only. So I think I think from that point of view, and, and I know you know you mentioned our business, um, but I, I, you know for me the the, the foundations are, are really um, important, and that's that's what we want to talk about today in terms of you know whether you choose to get professional advice or whether you try and do it yourself. Um, there are some you know there are some problems we see out there that people do um, that we want to rectify because you know it's a high value transaction, and if you get it wrong. Um, you know, you put yourself back five, ten years, and in some cases, you never recover. So, you know, if we can, you know, if the takeaways from today's podcast for those in the mining sector who are listening is, okay, it's 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 not a it's not a, it's a process, not an event. It's not something that I can just tick off in a matter of a couple of days, or or I read one book and now I'm you know happy to happy to risk half a million dollars. Uh, that's just crazy. So, I, I think if people approach it that it is a process. Um, and and then understand that by, with a little bit of planning um, that you can actually maximise your returns um, is a good thing. Yep, and I guess there's there's there'd be so many misconceptions out there about about property investment that normal people th- they might think is true, but but they aren't. And they, and and I assume these would lead into why some of these mistakes get made. So what what are what are some of the biggest I guess misconceptions that lead to those initial mistakes that people make when they first start getting into property investment Ben well I think it it, it's, it stems down from the information we take in Matt um, and that is that you know as we've been growing up and as we've watched uh, the property market itself um, everyone will tell you that property prices always go up Right, so over the long term, you know, property prices all go all, always go up, and and that is relatively true um, in a lot of cases. So we have this mindset that that, um, that every property is a winner. So it's just a matter of you know, basically pick anyone, and we're good to go, right? So so we disagree with that principle strongly, and and I'll just sort of just give you a little bit of the backstory for the listeners. If we think about what has been the fundamental reason why most property prices have grown across the country over a longer period of time, is really a product of um, income and borrowing power. Right? That that is what drives property values. So, if you think about the rising tide that's lifting all ships in the 1970s, our parents, um, or depending on what age you were, usually had a single income household. Uh, maybe in the early 80s to mid 80s, um, mum got a mum got a part-time job. Now the generation, my generation, um, the X generation, um, we 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 went through school as as did the girls in our classrooms, who for the first time they had an opportunity to have a career up. So it was really about seeing them being able to join the workforce and 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 be the best version of themselves they could be. That's a great story for any country. Um, to allow that type of thing to happen. And so all of a sudden in the 90s, even though we had really, really high interest rates, um, inflation was running stupidly at you know 10 to 12%. So that's why interest rates were so high. And Keating and Hawke um, realised that they had a productivity issue um, and you know got all of the, the right people in the room, called, uh, obviously when they won the election, they said, the unions have got to come on board, lift productivity, um, we've got to get inflation under control and we had the recession that we had to have, right? Uh, interest rates started to come back down, productivity improved and then 
effectively that was the platform for higher wage growth, double household income, lower interest rates. And since the 1990s, our country and our prosperity has grown significantly on the backbone of those significant reforms by um, Keating Hawke, probably a bit of Howard Costello. Um, you could claim a little bit of that too. Uh, superannuation um, was set up because the government worked out that they couldn't trust Australians with their own money and they weren't going to have enough money to look after them. So, so from that point of view, we got ourselves to a situation where double household incomes, low interest rates, off we go. You know, people could go and borrow more money. They did. Um, you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't look at property as, an in, as, a, as a fundamental valuation, right? So they're not using any fundamental mum and dads who are buying properties to live in, aren't sitting back going, oh, I'm just going to use a, a particular valuation model here to determine what it's worth. I'm going to be standing in an auction or I'm going to be negotiating a price against competition. And depending on what the banks will lend me, it's pretty much going to move that property price to that price point, right? So... We're always a big believer that owner-occupier appeal um, is where the best place to buy is because, you know, not all properties are created equal and the ones that have really strong owner-occupier appeal are supplemented by the infrastructure, the living standards, the local amenities, so the human interest and human behaviour elements is where you get those long-term outperform results. Um, yeah, sure, they might fluctuate a bit when the economy slows down because um, we are talking about areas that are gentrifying or have you know land that's fully utilised because ultimately the valuation will be set by demand and supply. And we only need to look at the mining towns. You know, if we go Karratha up through, right up to Derby there, um, and I did some, you know, some detailed research on those particular markets. And if we look at land to asset ratios in those particular markets, they're completely skewed to what they would be in a, in a normal environment. So what I mean by that for those who are new to property investing is what is the land value compared to the improvements that sit on that land? Now, ideally, you want to have a land to asset ratio that's between 55 and 65%. You don't want to have the land on a house and land component where the land is worth 25% and the improvements on the land uh, the remaining 75% of that valuation, it does not fundamentally make sense. So when you, when the, boot, the, the mining boom finishes, um, you know, they throw the baby out with the bathwater and you're standing there with an asset that's not rentable um, and the price falls out the bottom of the marketplace. Now, the replacement value is where you'll eventually land in terms of that because, uh, you know, I, I know the steel that goes into those places. I've got some great mates up there in Broome. And, you know, I'm staggered by you have to build to a certain, obviously, cyclone code and the amount of steel that goes into those places, plus the transport cost of getting the materials there, it's not easy to make a, a buck out of those places. It is very much cyclical uh, and timing the market's everything. You circle back to the big cities and you're going to be in a situation where once the land value is, is known and the land is scarce and there's strong demand for that land, that's what's going to appreciate. The buildings itself is going to depreciate over time um, or the improvements on the land are going to depreciate over time. So that's what you've got to look at. And then you've got to start to understand where are those buyers, where are they going to continue to keep pushing up demand? Now, I know this is a long-winded way of coming back to the first point I was making about incomes, but the reality is 
is that the people on the higher incomes can borrow more money. And they are, the, the skilled labour is usually the labour that gets the highest increases, and that is health, medicine, all of those things, um, finance, um, legal, um, those types of services where, you know, even though wage growth across Australia has been around 1.8 to 2% of late, those people, those professionals who are highly skilled and the subject matter experts at what they're doing are probably getting wage growth of 5 or 6% whereas the mass market's getting wage growth of 1%. So that means if you go to the house and land packages area where the land is just being subdivided recently and that's where the affordability is, it's usually the lower skilled labour workers and the ones who, are, you know, who could be um, compromised by automation, could be compromised by technology in the earlier stages where the risk lies. And so that's why we think what has been the rising tide that all ships over the last two decades or so is going to slow down now because we've got double household income, right? So we've got two professional workers, so we're peaking out there. And so it's going to be those inner city areas, in our view, that are going to have that pressure where people who do succeed and start their own businesses and get higher incomes or break the cycle of low-income households and bust into those bigger city areas, that is the demand piece that will ultimately always put pressure on the land values in those better areas. And that comes back to status and people wanting to live with like-minded people in a safe environment, a safe community. Now, that sounds pretty logical when you think about it like that, doesn't it? As opposed to when you see low interest rates and everyone can borrow $550,000, um, property prices go to $550,000, but they can't push through that ceiling because the vast majority of workers in that area can only borrow that amount. So you want to be in cities where there's big diversity of of jobs and opportunities. So, you know, Melbourne is a knowledge centre. Sydney is the financial capital of Australia. So we've got, you know, biotechs, we've got all of that type of stuff. And, and that's what bodes well for Sydney and Melbourne being expensive property moving forward. And that's no different than Boston, um, where you see the great universities. It's no different than New York, London, Tokyo, Shanghai, Singapore, where you get that high concentration of high-skilled labour that, that is paid well um, and then the infrastructure goes around those high-paid people, that's what you get the long-term outperformance results are. You know, and you can even pick on a city, um, what's a good example, say Geelong. Even in Geelong, which is a relatively you know, top 20 population city, you can still pick the eyes out of Geelong. There will be elite areas of Geelong um, with nice character homes where people who are aspiring to live you know, a sort of modern lifestyle, um, you can see those areas and those areas over the long term usually do very, very well because the people or the higher incomes move and put pressure on that and that's the demand and supply story happening over a sustained period, not over a short-term period. Yep. No, and when you said about Caratha before, like there was, you just hear, and the way I think of it was like, I compare it to Bitcoin, but it's just, I guess it's a real slow thing. Like, and even like the general consensus was people said, oh, you buy a property, it'll it'll double in 10 years. That's what property's been doing and it's going to continue that way. And then the year the Caratha store is people buying investment properties in Caratha. And as you know, this this bubble has essentially burst over, I guess, a, probably a longer period than the Bitcoin bubble did, but it's a, essentially the same concept. And there's so many people and people bought invest, I know people that bought investment properties in Kalgoorlie and the boom and spent all this money and and they've lost 
I guess it went slower than Bitcoin, but they've lost more than any Bitcoin person. People have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in value because this of this decline that's been apparent around the country. And it's, yeah, look, uh, I, mean, it is- I own a I own a property in Broome. Um, I not a, I, I was you know the valuation on the property uh, prior to me buying it was nine hundred and eighty thousand dollars, and I bought it for five hundred and eighty thousand dollars. In my self-managed super fund. Now, I'm not saying everyone to get out there and go and buy a self, set up a self-managed super fund. I think that's dumb. But right? you you need to know what you're doing. It takes a lot of care and responsibility in opening up something like that. But and a lot of paperwork too, I hear. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's you know a lot of obligation, right? So it's not for everyone. But you know, the strategy for me is I'm a sophisticated investor. I know what I'm doing. I saw an opportunity where I was getting a 7.8% yield. I saw the bottom of the market coming through. I bought at the bottom of the market or thereabouts. Okay, and I do know that there will be a demand for property in that area over the long term as we see more and more mining opportunities and, and agricultural opportunities and other opp- and tourism opportunities open up in that market. So my view is if there, is, if there ever is another boom up there, I will sell that property, right? I will sell it because inside self-managed super funds, I only pay 10% capital gains tax. Uh, whilst I'm in the accumulation phase and in pension phase, I pay no capital gains tax. So it's almost like having a principal place of residence. So, and again, I'm not advocating everyone in the mining sector get out there and grab a property in Broome. That's that's not sustainable. But it is about identifying the fact that I do this for a living. You know, um, we buy you know 30 to 40 properties a month for our clients. Um, we have full-time research. We're pulling. You know, we're we pull around two to three million data sets a month. Uh, we're reviewing as much as 500 properties a week. No individual can do that. So um, that's the that's the caliber of when you've got a team of 50 people um, across all the different sets to be able to give us that advantage to try and you know un- unearth those rare diamonds or those opportunities in the particular sub markets that we're talking about. So that that to me is. Different, you know, we, we don't we don't buy brand new, we don't buy off the plan, um, we don't do house and land packages. We buy existing property with proven resales history to get a sense of you know what's truly going to happen after the, the developers' profits are washed out of the value of the properties, um, and you know the builders' profits are washed out. What's left over? What's this thing going to do? Um, and you know what sort of capital growth am I going to get out of that property? And I think. Again, you know, if any the takeaways from today's podcast is really around um, making sure that you understand that it is a process and it's not an event and it's not something you would think is in a transaction. It's got a you, you, there is a science to it around the asset selection. There is a science to it around organising your money correctly, um, and you know that's why we've written a couple of books on the topics of money management and property investing. Purely for that reason, you know, and they're they're not, you know, ebooks that are sixteen pages long and are really just, you know, artificial sales um, material. These books have all the fundamental principles and processes that you need to follow, um, and they're two hundred and sixty pages long uh, because of exactly that. It's 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 not easy. If it was that easy, we'd all just go and grab any property. And as you say, you know, those poor people in Kalgoorlie. Uh, they've, you know, they're the ones who are paying the price uh, from from either being spruiked to because it's unregulated and there's a lot of cronies out there, or they just fail to do the fundamentals well, which is do the do the research um, or acknowledge that 
you don't have the advice, uh, sorry, the, the level of, of skill that I do or that people who do what I do and engage them, get them to do the work for you. Um, it's the same as so if I went into a mine with you, Matt, and we went to underground or we, we did, I would be useless for months um, until I was taught what to do and I wouldn't know what rock content, or I wouldn't know one rock from another, you know. So, uh, you know, what do I do? I, I get educated, I get skilled um, in my subject matter expertise and I go after it. Or I get people like you to, you know, pull the rock out of the ground and sell it for the companies that do know what they're doing. Uh, so th- that's the message here. Yeah, exactly. And and I guess we want to understand that there's so many, you hear so many people like, look, I want to, I've been reading up heaps on property investment and I want to get into property and you, you want to do it yourself. I guess people want pride in their own achievements and everything. But and look, even you don't have to mention specific details, but I would just assume because you're human that you would have made some massive mistakes in your early days of property and everyone has. And, that's, and that just really drives home the benefits of utilizing experts like yourself because god it might there might be a bit of a fee involved but it can save you so much money and and you're you're crunching all this data and providing just oh as you say one person cannot do it and it's yeah my biggest mistake is is now up to probably about 580 maybe six hundred thousand dollars every year i can i can have a quick look at the property that i sold that i never should have um, I bought the house road from mum and dad when I was 23. No idea what I was doing. Um, I'd saved up a deposit. I was working part-time. I was studying. Um, you know, my pop uh, passed away. I got a $10,000 inheritance from him. Um, and I bought the house across the road from mum and dad for 120000 I think back in 1994 um, in a suburb of Bundura in, in Melbourne. Um, I subsequently sold that property um, about five or six years later uh, for about 167000 right? So my, my horror story is not that bad because I, because I, I did start to do a truckload of research, but I, I went and got some bad advice. I, an accountant, um, he was the one who basically said, oh, look, you know, we need to, you're earning too much money, you know, five or six years later. We need to get your tax down, so why don't we go and buy an off-the-plan apartment or whatever? Now, by that stage, I'd been doing a lot of reading, a lot of magazines, going to a few workshops. I always had the, the mindset never to sign anything um, on the day of the workshops because you can tell when a workshop is um, is geared for sales, right? Because there's a special offer. They cre- you know, they artificially create scarcity um, around that. And so, you know, I always said, if, if, if your value proposition stacks up for me, you know, what sitting back and reading about it and doing some more research on you for the next two or three weeks um, would mean that if the value proposition still stacked up, I'll engage them, right? But most of them, as I said, they had an agenda, they were selling properties, they got commissions from the developer of the builder, you know, so it looked, looked pretty good on paper because the, the, it was, uh, you know, free service. But my accountant, um, he was more worried about my tax situation, um, which again is another big mistake. Um, so he told me to sell that property. Now, if I had have renovated the kitchen, bathroom and the back room on that house, um, those houses now sell in the range of $800,000 um, and I'd still have that property, right? And it'd be one of the many in the portfolio, right? So so that's a bit, yeah. So I, I was pretty lucky because I, I am quite conservative and I never rushed into anything, um, you know, and, and now that I've been doing this for 20-odd years, 
but, but oh, you know, we had a meeting just today with all of our property investment advisors and um, we're actually the client that we reviewed. So each we have a meeting every week and we do a couple of scenarios. This poor client in Perth um, has a couple of apartments that she bought off the plan and they're very small, tiny shoeboxes that have very little resale value, um, but we can't get her out of those because she's got no equity. So even if the, we can't even realise the opportunity cost or recycle the equity into a better opportunity right now because there's just no opportunity. So we're going to have to sit on our hands and so is she um, for the next couple of years until hopefully there's a little bit of movement in those two properties before we can start building out a better portfolio of assets for her. Um, and it happens all the time. I and mean, we get a lot of people coming in to review their portfolios. And, you know, we hate it when we have to make a recommendation to sell because it's bloody expensive. You're in and out. So you're in costs and out costs. By the time you weigh it all up, you're in that 15 to 20% range. So the, pro the next property you've got to buy has got to be an absolute winner or the next location you've got to buy in has got to be a winner. So, that you know, we hate it when people have got dud investments uh, and we've got to reboot their strategy. Um, we prefer to see them before they start. So what you were saying before, I know people take a lot of pride in that fact, if it is to be, it's up to me. But I mean, you know, there's a couple of great great uh, comments around that. I mean, the best players in the world, they do two things in any profession, in anything they do. They practice more than they play. They practice more than they play, like almost three to one, and they still have coaches. So if you think about it like that, I would say to anyone who's thinking oh, to get to get on the, on, the, on the ground floor, I would get help with the first one. If you learn a lot from that, then you want to go off and do it yourself. But don't completely stuff it up by doing it yourself the first time because um, there's so much to know. There's so much to think about. There's a team of people that you need to have around you. Um, and if that one goes really well, then all, all bets to you in terms of, and once you build a multi-million dollar property portfolio, can you can you throw in a specky like I did with Broom? Um, yeah, you can, but don't do that at the start. That's crazy, um, you know. Or and for the ten people that make a success of it, there's a hundred of people who are embarrassed to talk about, you know, the failure around doing that. Yeah. So how? Because how many how many people do you see Ben that just have, have done it off their own bat at the start and they've gone in with bugger all deposit? They've paid a shitload of mortgage insurance to to get these off the plan properties and they've they've got themselves in a situation. I gather it's pretty common, is it? Yeah, it's it's massive. I mean, ultimately. You know, we think there's around 25,000 property investor transactions a year. Um, and the vast majority of those, we think are probably sitting around 50, 45, 50% of those, I should say, are into new. So they're the people who probably we think have the underperforming assets. Um, and then the, the rest of them buying existing. Now, some, some of them are buying them to renovate them and add value. And I think there's no doubt that that's a great way to um to harvest equity quicker um it's not in, it's not so much investing because you're employing yourself to do a job right so you should, you should in your feasibilities you should be factoring in your hourly rate but if that's the way which you want to get ahead go for it right i think that's brilliant the, the time poor professionals or the miners who who want to work hard for five or ten years and set themselves up for life well that first and second purchase are absolutely critical and if you do those really, really well, um, you will be in a far better position um, than trying to listen to some spruker who's 
telling you, no, 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 this one's different. No, no, this area's got a train coming into it. No, no, this area is going to get all this wonderful infrastructure in the future. The fact of the matter is in most of those areas, there's a shitload of vacant land and that's not good for anyone in terms of resale or pressure on land value. So steer clear. The same thing with medium and high density apartments. Oh, no, there's no, you know, no apartments are planned in the next couple of years. Well, you're not owning the asset for the next couple of years, you're owning it for the next 40 or 50, hopefully. So, you know, I can turn on a thousand apartments in five complexes pretty quickly if the, if the you know, the, uh, the town planning changes. So there's always risk in my view in those and we're, we only need to see what's happening in Mascot and also what's happening, you know, with some of the cladding um, issues uh, and the, the costs for those poor owners of those properties who've got structural defects, um, who have got leaking problems through body corporates, who have got, I mean, it's just hard work. Um, and a lot of people, you know, do tend to get uh, burnt um, and then steer clear of it. Whereas, you know, if they looked in the mirror and they said, well, the failure wasn't the investment property, the failure was my asset selection and my preparation and my, and you know, before I actually took action. <coughs> I think that's the message that I want most people to get that it can be amazing you know it can it's life-changing you can be self-funded retiree just on a property portfolio of diversified assets across the country or you can be in a in a world of hurt where you've got a building that's structurally unsound your tenants being kicked out you're going to have to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for a for a special levy um to to try and prop that property that is a nightmare story right so you know getting opportunities to come on podcasts like yours to just give warnings to all investors that, A, property investing is not easy, right? It sounds easy, but there is a process and you need to make sure you get it right because there's a truckload of money at stake. Yep, exactly. And look, we're not trying to... um Look, I'm not trying. Ben hasn't come on as a bloody marketing employee. You can tell by all the uh, extracurricular stuff he gets involved in. This, so it's just more trying to protect people from making huge financially costly mistakes. That and and trying to promote the promote the knowledge that that's out there that can, uh, as you say, give a. And I spoke about it in my episode. The purpose of this investment of investing is to give yourself a passive income. So when you get to sixty, you don't have to be flogging yourself to try and get to your, you know, trying to get that one point six million dollar uh, retirement phase super cap. You you you've got it sort of coming in as an income stream already. So I guess Ben, what what we want to talk about now is like let's just say we've got miners out there that are listening to this podcast and there's look there's going to be some all around the country and that's why we gave an overview of what each state's doing but what how would you what would you recommend about getting into property investment and more so and this is something people are probably unaware of um the services of a buyer's agent and most people wouldn't even know what a buyer's agent is but and we've alluded to it already but uh just give us an overview there mate of what what i guess buyer's agents and what yourself can provide well yeah i mean again i'm not here to talk about our business what i what i want to talk about is I mean, there is an association that I am the chair of, which is called the Property Investors Council of Australia. Now, that is a $5 membership for a year or $20 for five years membership, right? So it's run by property investors for property investors. Now, the idea behind that is there's going to be, there's lots of education material, there's checklists, there's things that you can prepare yourself with. It's a non-for-profit association. 
And the idea is it's there for investors to avoid making uh, big mistakes. So that's the first thing I'd say to people to just, uh, you know, join up. Um, there's webinars, there's meetups, there's a chance to talk to fellow investors and there's no agenda. There's no sales agenda associated with that. That's the way we want it and that's the way we'll keep it. Now, if you are looking to deal with professional operators who operate under a code of conduct that aren't in an, in an unregulated environment, which is direct real estate, <coughs> excuse me, um, there is an association called the Property Investment Professionals of Australia. Now, that's the peak association for businesses who operate in the property investment space. Now, you can go onto their website and you can search for different types of professionals from property investment advisors through to buyers agents, through to mortgage brokers, through to accountants, etc. Okay, so they would be a good starting point um, in terms of that. Now, in terms of um, what I would do as, as a minor, um, you've got to ask yourself some questions. You've got to self-diagnose. Okay, am I good at money management? Am I good at organising my money? Um, can I trap a good surplus? Do I, do I want to put that, that money to work for me? They're the money questions you want to be having. Then it's around, okay, good borrowing power. How much, how much can I afford today? But also how much can I afford into the future? If I'm thinking mining's good for me for the next five years or 10 years, then you're pretty safe, right? But if it's, I'm doing mining for the next two years or so, then I need to get out, I'm burning out. It's, it's, you know, it's affecting my mental health. And then that's gonna be factored into the types of properties that we would look at, whether it be yield or growth type of properties, because ultimately if your income is gonna drop from a really strong income down to a, a more standardized average income, then what is that cash flow impact? From there, you should be able to determine what, your, what, you know, what, what price you can afford to pay for a property. Um, and that's the work that a property investment advisor does. They do all the number crunching, they look at the strategy. In some cases, um, like in our business, they reverse engineer a strategy to identify how many properties we're gonna buy and you know, be a passive, passive investor. In terms of buyer's agents, their job in a lot of cases is just to go out there and secure the best asset that they can based on the buying brief. Um, and that buying brief could be um, I just want a, a really strong capital growth asset, which means that in the early stages, I'm going to have to kick in a bit of cash to get it along, um, or I, I'm happy to buy a balanced asset, which has got a good blend of capital growth and good rental yield, or I want some cash flow. I need to go for a high yielding property. So depending on what that brief looks like, then the buyer's agent's job is to find that type of property um, around the country now there's <coughs> excuse me there's two different types of buyers agents there's the buyers agents who argue that you know they're the best type of buyers agent because they know their local patch um, and that's what they're looking to buy in and then there's buyers agents who what we call a borderless buyers agents where they do extensive research and they will buy anywhere around the country that they feel is going to give the best opportunity in terms of return on investment so we're talking about an investment buyer's agent as opposed to obviously owner-occupier. So that's the difference. Now, what's their job? Effectively, their job is to um, research, find, negotiate, and buy. That's what they do. Okay, so they should have 
great research that's supported through good measures of demand and supply to argue that it's high demand, low supply, um, which means that there's imminent capital growth. If you're chasing capital growth, um, they should have good knowledge of the historical prices on the street, the suburb, the area, all the amenities, the infrastructure. They should document and show to you some examples of the properties that they have been buying in the area and you know what have their previous performances been. So you've got a really clear idea of what type of asset they're going to buy for you. Um, and then ultimately, once you've identified that property, um, they're gonna help organize building and pests. They're gonna comp that property. They're gonna put a strategy, <coughs> excuse me, around what their negotiating tactics are going to be. That's gonna be a really important part for them. And then hopefully they're gonna secure the property at a great price for you as part of their skilled negotiation. Um, yep. That's what you pay for when you get a buyer's agent. Yeah, and a key, a key word you said there, Ben, is negotiation. So people, uh, some people might be steered away from the concept of the buyer's agent because they're like, oh, I'm already paying stamp duty. I don't want to pay a fee for a buyer's agent as well to buy a property. But it's the, it's the negotiation, I guess, knowledge and skills of buyer's agents that will actually reduce the purchase price of your property. And, yeah, yeah, evidently paying, you're knocking off the buyer's agent's fee due to, I guess that's that's just for the actual purchase price, but knowing that you're you're being steered in the direction of a of a good you're buying a good quality property for whatever circumstances you have, whether you're looking for yield or capital growth or a mixture of both, and um, oh, just the return on investment of that buyer's agent's fees is is, uh, is phenomenal. I I think uh, I haven't utilised a buyer's agent, but uh, yeah, as you can see, the mistakes you can make in property and the money you can lose, it's uh, well worth seeking professional advice from uh, companies like yourself yeah i think it you know this is about going into the business of creating financial peace for you and your family or you know or you individually depending on your situation at the time right so we take the view that you know the miners that you work for they did strong feasibilities around whether the mine was profitable whether it was worthwhile doing they had business cases they did cash flow forecasts. They did all these things to create profit out of their venture. You should take the same approach to your investment when you're talking about property. You need to make sure that you've got your numbers right. You need to make sure you know what you're doing. You need to be very clear about that story. And then ultimately, it's coming out the other side of that, which is then executing on securing that property and then getting great tenants into that property. If you do all that really well, <coughs> excuse me, you're going to be incredibly well served, um, and I'll, you know you're going to you're going to see a property that is going to create significant wealth for you. And if you get two or three of them, it's going to be life changing. You're going to be able to choose to to do the things that you want to do later in life and be self under retirement. You know that 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 in itself has got to be a sense of purpose and a sense of achievement um, for most of us. Yep. No, awesome. Look, and look, a couple of things I want to ask you, and I guess there's some of these, I guess, somewhat myths we could probably squash for property investors and, and, and maybe just some key advice, well, based on my experience and stuff I've seen. Um, if someone is, just tell us your view on, on mortgage insurance and I guess just the importance of trying to save up as big of a deposit as you can to really 
lower that loan amount, reduce the mortgage insurance, and I guess the compounding effects of that hard work you can put in early compared to if you bite the bullet, go into a property too quick, pay too much mortgage insurance. So with mortgage insurance, Matt, in some cases it's a necessary evil, right? Um, Because it could allow me to get into a market that I think is going to well and truly outstrip the cost of that. So by way of example, um, probably about 10 years ago, um, I decided to to do a 90% loan to value ratio on one of my properties. Now that allowed me to maintain $110,000 in additional liquidity or money set aside for the potential next purchase. So in my case, um, the justification was I could acquire another property, which meant that over the longer term, I'd be in a better financial position. Um, now, you know, I'm again, I'm educated and sophisticated in that space. If you're just starting out, um, the question would be, would you pay mortgage insurance on a property? Well, the answer for that for me, on a good property, yes, I would. On a bad property, no, I wouldn't. Um, would I pay, if I'm a first home buyer, um, would I pay mortgage insurance? That's a really easy question for me to answer. So for first home buyers, um, if the property prices are growing quicker than you can save, then it's worth paying mortgage insurance, right? It's worth getting in. If they're growing slower than you're saving, then keep saving, right? It's just as simple as that. So, you know, there is a cost of money um, and it's about making your money work as hard as it possibly can for you, subject to your risk profile, right? And subject to your tolerance on being on, on paying a certain amount of money. So my example before, when I went up to 90% uh, LMI, I paid $9,000 for that privilege of having that extra $110,000 in my back pocket uh, for other opportunities. Now, um, that wasn't my, that was my third property at the time. So, so from that point of view, the, the reality is, is it's got to come down to the logistics of the case by case. I don't think any blanket statement about, um, you know, higher interest rates are bad, lower interest rates are good, um, lenders mortgage insurance is bad, lenders mortgage insurance is good. It's just a case by case. I mean, because that's where the, the planning work comes into it. Like, you know, if, a, if a, again, a mining company said, oh, we could really, we could make a lot of money out of that mine if we didn't take on any debt, but we could make a good amount of money if we took on a bit of debt, which means we could actually buy the mine, then they'll take on that bit of debt to buy the mine, right? So, so the, it, it, the same sort of thing. I always use the example of Qantas or DHB. Qantas knows that if they buy a plane outright, um, they could probably make more money. But if they could buy three planes um, and have 70% loadings on those planes, but, but buy them through debt, they're going to be in a better position because they've got more frequency, more, and then they win more custom and they win loyalty. So these are all the little things that happen inside businesses that where you've got to make these trade-offs. You've got to make these judgment calls and it's those judgment calls that ultimately lead to greater success. So I'm of the view that um, it can be a necessary evil um, if you are serious about what you need to do and you want to act sooner rather than later. But in some cases, it's like, you don't need to do it. Don't do it. So let's say, oh, you've got a good amount of cash. Maybe we don't need that. But if you want to preserve some cash. So, you know, in a lot of cases for some of our clients, um, for a lot of, sorry, for a lot of clients, we normally do an 80% loan to value ratio, right? Um, but 
if some clients want to keep liquidity and a buffer, a cash flow buffer, we might go as high as 85 or 88% because lenders' mortgage insurance kicks in at different stages and it's a bit more costly as it goes up depending on the loan amount that you borrow. So again, that's another reason why you need an investment savvy mortgage broker to help you in that process. If you don't know that and you go and speak to a bank manager, they, they are not going to tell you this. They are not going to tell you all the increases. They're not going to tell you. They just want to sell you a loan. If, if you can buy it, go off and buy it, right? They're not going to say, well, actually, I want you to structure it like this. Here's your primary account when you're offset account to be on that. Here's the loan split that's going to be dedicated to the next investment property. They're not doing any of that. It's just like, yeah, here's our interest rate. It's got redraw. Yep, it's got internet banking. It's really easy to use. You, you know, you're not going to get the value out of that, that relationship. Whereas if you speak with an investment savvy mortgage broker, you, they're going to understand strategy, tactics, structures, around setting you up so you can continue on your journey of property investing. Yep. Ah, that's good, yeah. And that, look, that's even um, taught me a lot of stuff the way you've explained that. And because oh, I guess I had the... Um, but but again, it again comes back to the fact of having that professional advice that like, look, if you are going to pay mortgage insurance, you've got to be pretty damn certain it's going up and that's engaging uh, professionals like yeah, yourself and, 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 and pointing in that direction. Also know that LMI, Lenders Mortgage Insurance, is deductible over five years. So you can you can then offset the cost of that over a five-year period. So my $9,000 example, that was then obviously deducted over, written off over five years against any gains that I might have had um, or reduced my tax over that time. So, it, you know, on balance, it allowed me to make an informed decision to control more liquidity and if you listen to or read any of my stuff before, I'm a big believer in you being in control of cash flow and being in control of money. I'm, I'm a big believer in interest-only lending. I'm a big believer in some of the things that, that aren't, aren't right for everyone. And, I, and I've got to stress that um, in terms of, you know, there is a journey that you go on as you move from novice to potentially, you know, uh, amateur to then professional investor. Um, and, you know, that's why... There's a lot of moving parts and, and that's why I'm happy to do these types of podcasts because I'm hoping, uh, you know, I hope that I'm opening up the ears and the eyes of people to sort of say, hmm, a little bit more, a little bit more complexity to this than I thought um, in, in terms, same I'm sure with mining. I'll just blow that rock up and just get it out of the ground and put it on a ship, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure there's a fair bit more that goes into it, right? Uh, I think it's a, bit sim- it's a bit simpler than property, I'd say, mate, but yeah. <laughs> No, that's good. And and another one, I guess, would be just negative. And because a lot of this stuff, I probably made some blanket statements in my podcast episode, but it was more it's it's from that novice point of view. And and as we've heard from yourself, that isn't it's a case by case situation. And the other one is negative gearing, because mm-hmm. obviously, if you if you're negatively geared, it means you're losing money. But can you explain what the the situations where negative gearing losing money in the short term is? I guess, leading to making a lot more money in the longer term. Yeah, so I, th- I think this comes back to the performance of the investment, right? So the property that, that you potentially are chasing, right? So usually strong capital growth properties are usually lower yielding, um, which means that if you want to buy into some of the better areas in the capital cities, um, which have really good land value and, and, and potential growth for land value over time, is that usually the rent 
isn't going to cover the cost of being in the property. So that effectively means that you will run that property for that year at a loss. So the income you've received against the cost of holding that property, obviously including the interest, um, is there's a shortfall. Now, um, each month you have to cover that shortfall uh, by paying extra, paying the repayments on the loan and keeping that property afloat, okay? So keeping that property solvent uh, is the technical accounting term. Now, at the end of that year, there's potentially a loss that you may have accrued. That loss is then offset against the income that you earn. So if you earn $120,000 a year and you've had an operating loss on that property of $10,000, that means your income is taxed at 110. But if you've already paid the tax on that, um, then that, that means you would get a refund of the tax you paid on that last $10,000, which will be rebated to you in your tax return. That's that's what negative gearing is. I mean, it's not it's not a um, it's not a strategy for property investing. It's a, a, a factor in um, it. It does allow investors to, to su supply rental accommodation um, out there because without property investors, uh, there'd be a lot of people paying a hell of a lot higher rents uh, because there's no commercial businesses in this space, and the government have certainly not provided the level of accommodation needed for new entrants to different cities around the country. So that's what negative gearing is. So I've always said it's a moment in time uh, because over time the rents on the property will slowly increase. And if we you know, come back to Perth in the last 12 months, rents have gone up 2.5%. The average rental yield in Perth now is 4.3%. So as your rents go up and you pay the debt down over time, there is going to be a time where that property moves from negatively geared, meaning that there's a there's a loss, to basically breaking even, to eventually seeing uh, property delivering you a positive income, and that positive income is going to be taxed. Um, so over time, as you you know develop a hundred thousand dollars of uh, rental income in addition to your own income, you're going to be paying tax on that money. But what's left over is yours, and that's what you get to enjoy as part of your retirement. So I think what a lot of people uh, misconstrue is that if you run something at a loss for the short term, it's got to be on the on the proviso that over the long term, it's going to deliver strong capital growth. And then ultimately, with a higher valuation, you usually get higher rents. So that's the view that we take in terms of the great thing about good capital growth properties is the rents are usually higher um, significantly higher over time as well. So, you know, there's a win-win. You get a bigger capital valuation and you get uh, higher rents over time. So you wouldn't use negative gearing on any type of asset. Again, you want to steer clear of all of the people who spruik to you about, look at all the depreciation I'm getting, you know, all this money you're going to get back and how cheap it is to hold the property. It's no good if that property doesn't grow in value. And the example I always use is about the, the corner store, right? The little milk bar. Um, you wouldn't go and buy a milk bar for $500,000 and run it at a loss of $10,000 a year on the proviso that in five years' time or 10 years' time, someone's going to pay you $600 or a million dollars for that uh, milk bar, right? No one is because they're going to look at the books and say, this is not a good investment, right? Um so when it comes to the property, you've still got to come back to the fundamentals of demand and supply. You want to always buy a property that has high demand. And when the vast majority of the market is 70% owner-occupier, 
You want to be talking to that market. You want to be tapped in to how they're thinking about the property you're about to buy. If they love it, then that's going to have strong capital growth over the longer term. If they don't like it and it's just built for investors, then the reality is the capital growth is going to be compromised um, in terms of the returns you're going to get over the longer term. So, yeah, negative gearing, it's a, it's a nice to have. should never look at it as a strategy and it's always just a moment in time. Over the long term, we want that property to turn positively geared to give you that passive income for life. Yep, and that and that comes back to look, and this is a, the real sort of simple side of things that I went over in the first episode. This is uh, it's just understanding that early on in your loan cycle, it's just the natural thing. You're always going to be playing a very high interest component, but and once you once you get through that cycle, and if you if you get any extra money on your mortgage, that's when you can turn in that negatively geared into into positively geared, and I guess it's that compound effect that can really start taking off when you get into your fifties. That's right, man. And you want to make sure you're putting that money into an offset account against that property. Um, that's another big thing that we're also really big on in, in terms of don't necessarily pay the loan down if you don't have to, but if you put it into an offset next to that, the interest is going to be exactly the same, but it puts you in more control of that liquidity. Um, so again, another example of why you'd speak to an investment savvy mortgage broker as opposed to your standard uh, standard broker or standard banker. Yeah, and it, and it'd be I'm sure you've got many a many a spreadsheet that shows this, but just the the importance of having that extra, and what what Ben means by that offset account is just having that that bank account that's linked to your mortgage. So any bit of money that's in that account is uh, being counted towards the uh, the principal of that loan, and you're not paying you're paying less interest essentially. And that just having that extra thousand or so dollars over a twenty year period, I assume, can uh, add up to a lot of interest saved and a lot of time off your mortgage and getting to that stage where you, you, you're not paying mortgage repayments anymore, you own the house. Yeah, that's right. If you think of it like a bucket, so if you've got, one, you've got your loan bucket that's got $100,000 in it and you've got your offset bucket has got $10,000 in it, you're only paying interest that night, so it's calculated daily on $90,000, which means you're right, you pay less interest and that less interest means that your, your savings or your, your liquidity is growing and ultimately that's potentially a deposit for another property down the track or um, to pay off your principal home, um, you know, your principal place of residence debt, because that's obviously uh, non-deductible, uh, whereas your investment debt is deductible debt. Yeah, no, awesome. Right, well, Ben, you probably, uh, probably, we've nearly gone over time here and I really appreciate everything. I've got, I've got a couple of things to, oh, one more thing to ask you and then I'll give you an opportunity to tell us just a brief about uh, how to get in touch with you, but uh, mate, Perth is Perth yes. on the is is that on the rise in a couple of years? Do you reckon? Especially with the uh, I can feel on the ground floor that uh, mining is definitely picking up. Yep. Do you see a bit of a delay between the mining boom and a property boom, or what's the general consensus from your point? Yeah, I wouldn't say Perth is going to boom, um, but I def- it's look that the signs are clear that it's not far off. Um, the, the, the early signs that we always look for is the vacancy rates. So you guys were tracking at around six to seven percent vacancy rates at the at the bottom of the market. Um, now investors need to have tenants in their property, otherwise you're going to be picking up the whole the whole shortfall. So we're now starting to see those vacancy rates come back down to what we would consider standard market rates um, in that sort of two two to three percent range. So 3% is what we call a balanced uh, rental market. So we're starting to get down to those levels. Um, 
stock on market is still sitting a little high for, for our liking at the moment uh, and days on market is still not quite uh, turning the corner that we want to see. So if you think about stock on market and days on market, we're measuring demand in regards to and supply in those two equations. So from our point of view, um, we do think that a lower interest rate environment and a broader Australian economy and, and, and also a Chinese economy in your case um, is looking pretty good. So, you know, I suspect we'll see a bottoming of the Perth market um, by the end of this year, um, early next year, and then hopefully some improvements and a bit of capital growth. Um, now, again, sub-markets inside that, we already are starting to see markets like Subi, um, Victoria, um, uh, Victoria Park, I think it is, um, those types of areas um, doing pretty well in regards to um, to some of the growth in the better markets. And that's always a good sign, right? It's usually the higher end markets that start to do well and then that confidence spreads to the rest of the market. Ah, good to hear. Well, how, how's Two Rocks looking, mate? Two Rocks, Yanship Way. I've got, I've got to join up there. But uh, tell everyone, if you need anyone come to advice, tell them to move up there. Get the demand up to Two Rocks. Well, that's the problem. You've got that because you've got a lot of supply up there. So it's going to be a little while. But, uh, yeah, you're better off sort of focusing in East Perth and, and those sort of inner city areas or beachside, you know, city beach up through that way. But it will eventually flow up there. There's no doubt. The ripple effect is real when it comes to valuations because that's the affordability story, right? But um, all, all recoveries usually um, start at the high end, not at the low end. Yeah. Oh, awesome, mate. Look, thanks very much for today. I've, I've had an absolute ball. I could uh, keep going for hours picking your brain. And um, look, I've, I've certainly learned a lot from you and I hope and everyone else is going to learn a lot too. And uh, look, how, how do, uh, if people want to get in contact with yourself or Empower Wealth, mate, and I guess the biggest one we want to drive home is if you're in WA, uh, you can you can still utilise the services. Yeah, we've got Ben and the boys at Empower Wealth. Um, we've got thousands of clients all around Australia and overseas as well. So, um, yeah, um, it's as simple as going on our website, check us out, um, look at our credentials, see the stuff we've been buying, how we go about it. Uh, obviously, we've got the podcast, the books. Um, there's some how-to videos there to see what we're about. We're a fee-for-service business. We, we don't take commissions. We don't take any... Um, any other sort of payments. Our clients know exactly what they get with us. They're, they're paying for our time and our skills. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, you can book a, a complimentary initial consultation around property investment advice. You'll meet with one of our qualified property investment advisors remotely, the same way you and I are chatting today via the power of the internet. So you'll have a face-to-face -face, uh, interchange of a webcast meeting um, you know, there's some information we'll gather from you and our process is really simple. That first meeting is about understanding um, your opportunity and your potential and what you're trying to achieve and, and if, you know, you, you think that we can help in that story, um, you know, we'll outline how we can help and if that's of, uh, of interest to you, you engage us and away we go. Awesome, mate. I'll um, I'll chuck you all the details of Empower Wealth. And uh, look, if you if you are interested in property, property, make sure you get on to Ben's uh, and Bryce's podcast, The Property Couch. It's uh, yeah, it's a good listen. I go I gave you a good talk up in the intro anyway, Ben. <laughs> yeah. So you probably you don't, don't you don't need to. No, it's yeah, yeah, you're probably I'm sick of talking about emotion. yourself yeah. after all these years. <laughs> all good, mate. Look, um, yeah, thanks very much again, mate. And look, I always sign off with a message. Have you got a message you want to just one simple, short, sweet message you want to? 
give to miners looking to get into property? Well, my, my message is the same. I sign off on my podcast every week, and that is knowledge is empowering, but only if you act on it. Oh, fantastic, mate. Good on you. Good on you, Ben. And uh, look, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that and uh, stay tuned. And uh, tomorrow I've actually got Scott Phillips coming on from The Motley Fool to give some uh, share advice and to squash some of my recommendations that I put on, <laughs> on that one as well. Nah, too easy, Ben. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Cheers, mate.